Amazing, isn't it? What a beautiful song. Praise the Lord. Now I invite uh, Pastor Caroline to come and bring God's word to you. Good morning, everyone. Well, with the exception of Smyrna, uh, the persecuted church for which Jesus could find only words of praise, our journey through these letters, through each of the seven churches in Revelation, has borne witness to a progressive deterioration in the spiritual state of the churches which we have visited. We began with Ephesus, a church that was hardworking, a church that would not tolerate false teachers among them, a church that had endured much hardship without growing weary, but a church that had forsaken its first love. And when a church's first love for Christ wanes, something is going to replace it. And in Pergamum, we saw that compromise with the world had crept into the church. And last week in Thyatira, we saw the continued downward spiral into compromise. And today we reach Sardis and there really isn't that much further to fall from here because Jesus' description of that church is pretty blunt. They are dead. You know, when my older children were young, Bruce and I were part of a small group that met in a member's home each week for Bible study. And we used to take our children along armed with colouring pencils and colouring books and a few toys and snacks. And they would sit mostly quietly on the floor and uh, play uh, because they knew that if they behaved well, the host would usually bring out some chocolate biscuits or cake or something which they could enjoy. And normally we would spend the first part of our time together uh, studying the Bible before an extended time of prayer. And on this particular night, our time of prayer was mostly a time of quiet reflection. And somewhere in the middle of that time, it must have dawned on our two, two and a half year old daughter that the room that was normally so full of life and so full of sound had grown strangely quiet. And she must have looked up and there all around her were 12 or so adults who were normally so animated and now for all intents and purposes looked to be dead. And you can imagine the fear in her little two and a half year old mind. Every adult in the room is dead. And if they're not dead, then something very strange has happened because all of them have simultaneously fallen into a deep sleep. All of them have their eyes closed. Some of them are slumped forward. Some of them are reclining backwards in their chairs and one of them has slumped on her husband. What's a two-year-old to do in such a situation? Well, she rose to her knees and she shouted, wake up! And that solved the problem for her because what appeared to be dead bodies suddenly started shaking with life as everyone tried to conceal their laughter and maintain that quiet, reflective, prayerful moment. You know, when Jesus looked upon the church in Sardis, what he saw was a church that for all intents and purposes appeared to him to be dead. And his urgent message to them was the same as my two and a half year old daughter, wake up. 
So we're going to have a look now at exactly what he had to say to that church in Sardis. Reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what we remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we all know that looks can be deceiving. That group of slumped bodies surrounding my two-year-old was neither dead nor were they sleeping. But in Sardis, things were the other way around. For all intents and purposes, this was a church that appeared to be very much alive. I know your deeds, says Jesus. You have a reputation for being alive. So out there in the community, perhaps even in the wider community of the churches of Asia Minor, the church in Sardis had this reputation and it was a reputation for being alive. Now, what do you think of when you think of a church that is alive? Rightly or wrongly, many of us, when we think about a church being alive and vibrant, we tend to think of people and programs. Lots of people coming and going, lots of activity and lots of programs. And we look to some of the bigger churches and we think, wow, there's a church that's really alive. And it would seem from the text before us today that that is also how the people of Sardis and perhaps beyond Sardis measured life. Trouble is people and activity and programs are not how Jesus measures life in his church. Big, busy churches and small, less busy churches both can be alive. And equally, big, busy churches and small, less busy churches can equally be dead. And the words of the Lord to Samuel when he sent him to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint David as the new king ring true even today. Remember, Jesse had his sons come out before Samuel and when the first one appeared, Samuel was sure that he would be the one that the Lord had chosen. But the Lord said to him, do not look on his appearance or his height because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And when Jesus looked to the heart of Sardis, what he saw was a church in need of some urgent defibrillator action. Before a quick trip to the emergency department with lights flashing, 
and sirens wailing. This was a church in spiritual trouble. Sardis was founded in 1200 BC. It was the capital city of Lydia. Uh, the fortified part of the city sat upon a 1500 foot high plateau. And those of you who have read your announcements that were sent out from the church office this week would have seen what remains of that plateau. A lot of it has been eroded away over time. Uh, and you would have also had the opportunity to look at that drone footage flying over that, that plateau and, and see the remnants of the fortifications and the wall uh, that were around the top of that plateau there. There was just one narrow road that led to the top of that plateau and all around the other sides were just steep, seemingly impenetrable cliffs, which gave the city great protection from invading armies. Sardis was the home of Aesop, the fable writer. Uh, it was a wealthy and powerful city known for its production of wool, dyed cloth and jewellery. The city and its king, King Croesus, were famous around the world at the time for their great wealth, uh, which was built largely off the gold that was abundant in the rivers that flowed through that city. Gold and silver coins were first minted in Sardis. And the saying, as wealthy as Croesus, is still used in that part of the world even today. But while Sardis reached the height of its power and wealth under King Croesus, it also fell under his reign because the people became complacent. When the surrounding region was attacked by Persia's King Cyrus, uh, the the king and his people simply retreated to the fortified part of the city, remembering that it was on top of that very high plateau with only a single narrow access road. And they felt that there they would be safe. According to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, one of Cyrus's soldiers watched as the soldiers, a soldier from Sardis climbed over the wall and down a very narrow path to retrieve a helmet that had fallen from the top. And so the enemy soldier simply watched as this soldier made his way down and then back up again and he took note of the path. And later that night, he led his own troops up uh, where they got to the wall and when they got to the wall, they found that it was completely unguarded. So confident were the troops in Sardis of the natural defences of that city that they hadn't bothered to be diligent in keeping watch. And the city was easily conquered by the Persians. And then some 200 years later, when it was the turn of Antiochus and his armies to attack, complacency still ruled in Sardis and almost exactly the same thing happened again. By the time John received his words from Jesus intended for this church in Sardis, it was still a relatively wealthy and powerful city, but it was nothing like it had been in its glory days. The city had this great reputation, but the people had grown spiritually lazy. They were undisciplined, immoral, indifferent and complacent. The church in Sardis was dead even though it was still very much alive. And it is to this church that Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
The seven spirits of God, we understand from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, to refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. The spirit of the Lord and the spirits of wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and knowledge and fear of the Lord. And the seven stars, you might remember, we encountered them back in chapter 1. And there we were told that the seven stars refer to the angels of the seven churches. And you might recall that that word angel literally means messenger. And so whilst there's still some debate about exactly who these messengers might be, it is clear that they have something to do with the churches themselves. Most likely something to do with helping the churches to understand the heart of God. So maybe the pastors, the elders, the teachers, the leaders of these churches who bring the word of God to the people, or possibly an elected representative who relayed God's word from John on the island of Patmos to the churches. So by this introduction, Jesus is telling this church that is so in need of emergency treatment, that is so full of nominal Christians, where they could find all the healing they would need. In his spirit and in his word is found everything needed for a healthy church. Operating in their own power had landed them with a great reputation in the world, but spiritually they were in need of emergency help. And they were so sick that they didn't even realise their need for help. As you know, as we've journeyed through each of Lee's letters to the churches, what has struck me the most is just how little has changed in so many years. Sure, we're no longer worshipping at the temple of Artemis or lying in a room full of snakes as part of our medical treatment, but the underlying principles are still there. Loss of passion or our first love, compromise with the things of the world, and complacency. And Jesus is still standing in the midst of his church and he still holds the seven spirits and the seven stars and his message is still the same. In essence, what I think he's saying in his introduction here is, in me, you will find everything you need. I hold it all in my hands. Your efforts at doing church the human way will yield flawed human results. In me, you will find all the divine power, all the divine wisdom and understanding and direction to rise up and be the church that I've called you to be because I hold the seven spirits and the seven stars in my hand. The next thing he says to this church is, I know, I know your deeds, says Jesus. And evidently in the case of this church, so did everyone else because their deeds had given them that reputation of being alive. But things are not always as they seem. I remember once Bruce and I were overseas traveling and Sunday came around and we were looking for a church that we could attend. And we'd seen this beautiful picture perfect church that we thought would be great to go to. The building was magnificent but there was only seven of us in the congregation, including Bruce and myself. There was a lot of ritual and a lot of repeating of things which made us feel awkward because we didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. 
But the strangest thing was that there was no Bible anywhere in sight. Instead, the preacher preached from fairy stories and we couldn't get out of there fast enough. It was just that dry, dry feeling. And that feeling isn't exclusive to small, obviously struggling churches. You can experience it equally in large, busy churches, the kind of churches that have a huge staff and slick programs. And you can experience it in medium-sized churches like ours because looks can be deceiving. In death, the struggle is over. How often have you heard someone say of the Christian in death, oh, he or she is at peace now, or their struggles are over. We say that because it's true. With life comes struggles, trials and hardship and illness and pain. And in the church, so too, as with life, we should expect struggles. Look at Ephesus. They had endured many hardships. Or Smyrna, suffering under the crushing burden of persecution or Pergamum or Thyatira with their false teachers trying to infiltrate the church. There's none of that in Sardis. Sardis was so lifeless that the struggle was already over. Now you may have noticed that Esther is back on board this week. She's obviously got that boot off and she's she's back in action with the flowers and as always she's done a wonderful job. They look so beautiful and full of life but their apparent vitality betrays their actual state because they're dead. And they're dead because she has cut them off uh, at the stem, at the base. They've been cut off from their source of life. Now she might be able to get a little bit of extra time out of them with the special water that she uses or the special additives that she puts into that water or maybe even by wiring some of the stems to keep them upright but the fact remains these are dead but they just don't look it right now and so it is with the church doesn't matter if you're preaching from fairy stories or if you're flat out busy or over investing in maintaining ritual and tradition and slick programs. If a church has been cut off from the source of life, it won't matter how appealing the preaching is or how sacred the rituals appear or how many hundreds or even thousands of people are drawn in through the programs or how vibrant or alive that church appears to be If that church has been cut off from the source of life, that one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hand, it is only working in human power and wisdom and human direction and therefore it is spiritually dead. And Jesus has a very simple three-part prescription for this church. Wake up. Don't remain ignorant or stay in denial. Recognise what your real state is. That's the first thing that they have to do. If you don't think you're in need of emergency treatment, you're not likely to call an ambulance or seek out a doctor. And many people have died needless deaths because they didn't realise how sick they were and so they didn't call an ambulance or seek medical help. So a bit of honest self-assessment is called for first of all. Strengthen what remains, says Jesus. Well, how do we do that? 
seek out the great physician and reconnect with that source of life. Stay grafted into the vine. Spend time on your own spiritual well-being. Remember what you've received and heard, says Jesus. Obey it and repent because God is not impressed by human endeavours. He gave Christ and only Christ to be the head of the church. And a church that fails to really connect with Christ is as dead as a body from which the head has already been disconnected. If this church in Sardis doesn't wake up, Jesus warns them he will come like a thief and they won't know at what time he will come. Just like that one Persian soldier who led the troops up the path and over the wall while Sardis was left unguarded, the complacent church is not watching for the Lord. They have no hope for his return because their minds are already fully occupied with the things of the world. That first love is long since gone. So there's no longing for the bridegroom's return, neither is there any struggle to fuel their hopes for his return. There's just that complacent self-sufficiency, a veneer of religiosity that masks their underlying fatal spiritual condition. When the bridegroom returns, there will be no warning. Three times Jesus tells the church that he'll be coming like a thief. He says it here. He says it in Matthew 24, 43 and in Revelation 16, 15. Paul presents the same teaching in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and verses 4. And Peter also in 1 Peter 3:10. And these words are a wake-up call to the complacent church. In Matthew's Gospel, these words are followed by several instructive parables, including the faithful and wise servant found doing the master's will when he returns. And the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom, five of them wise who made their preparations, five of them foolish who did not. And when the bridegroom returned, only those who were prepared were taken to the wedding banquet with him. The bridegroom is coming and we must not be so complacent to assume, like those soldiers guarding Sardis did, that we're ready <clears throat> just because we have a veneer of religiosity around us, perhaps made up of our good deeds or our Sunday attendance or our busy activities. Paul puts it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And isn't that verse played out in the history of the city of Sardis? While the king and his people were high up on that plateau, safely tucked away behind the city walls, peace and safety was the order of the day. So much so 
They didn't even bother to set a watch in spite of knowing that Cyrus's troops were on their way. While they were inside saying peace and safety, one soldier led the troops up the cliff and suddenly, as in labour pains on a pregnant woman, destruction came upon the city. But yet even within this dead church, there were a few who would escape. And in fact, that is exactly what the name of this church means. Sardis actually means escaping ones or those who come out. Who were they? Well, perhaps in this church, they were the ones who constantly felt like they were banging their heads on brick walls. Perhaps they were the ones crying out for truth in a church where truth was no longer valued. Perhaps they were the ones longing for reform and revival. Perhaps they were the ones fed up with meaningless traditions and dissatisfied with programs for the sake of programs. Many scholars look to the Reformation as that time in church history most likely to be symbolised by the church at Sardis, that time when Martin Luther and the other reformers protested against false teachings, against the privileged status of the clergy and the perceived corruption that was in the church at the time. These escaping ones in Sardis, says Jesus, have not soiled their clothes and will walk with him in white because they are worthy. Now in Pergamum and Thyatira, there were a few bad in among the good, but here in Sardis, among the spiritually dead, there are only a few good among the rest who are spiritually dead. Just a few who have not soiled their garments. Nonetheless, Jesus is not prepared to turn his back on a lot of them. These few will be dressed in white and will walk with him because they are worthy, even if the rest of the church is not. Now, the low point in the history of Israel was surely her time spent in exile in Babylon, a result of the sinfulness of the people. And when that time of exile was over and that remnant was able to return to Jerusalem to rebuild, the Lord sent the prophet Zechariah to encourage the people to complete the rebuilding of the temple and to to themselves be spiritually renewed. And in a vision, which you'll find in chapter 3, Zechariah sees the high priest Joshua. And Joshua represents the sinful nation of Israel and he is dressed in this vision in filthy garments. And the English word that is used here, filthy, doesn't really do justice to um, what is said there. The Amplified Bible says nauseatingly vile garments and that probably gives more of the intent of what is meant here because the filth of these garments represents the sin of the nation before God. It was nauseatingly vile before him. In this vision, the angel of the Lord orders the filthy clothes to be removed and he says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. 
And so Joshua is provided with a new set of beautiful clothing and a clean turban to put on his head. And the vision ends with Joshua being told of the servant who is to come, the one who will be called the branch, and how on that day the Lord Almighty will remove the sin of the land in a single day and each one will invite his neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, which is a, a biblical symbol for peace and safety that the people of Sardis only thought they had. Jesus also tells a story about someone who was inappropriately dressed. This man was a guest of the king at a wedding banquet. And the story is found in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 22. Many of you will know the story. King prepares a wedding banquet for his son. And so he sends out the servants to go and tell those who were invited to come. But the invited guests refuse to come. And so again, he sends the servants out to tell the invited guests to come. And again, the guests refuse. And this time, some of them even mistreat the servants and kill some of them, which makes the king very angry. So he sends the servants out into the streets to invite whomever they can find. And they bring them in to the wedding banquet. And now in the culture of the day, it would not have been unusual for the host to provide the invited guests with suitable attire. And in this particular instance, given that the guests had come from the streets and the laneways, it would have been essential. And it seems in this instance, everyone was wearing the appropriate wedding garments, all except for one. And we don't know his motivation for refusing the garments that were supplied. Perhaps he could see nothing wrong with what he was wearing. He thought he was quite okay as he was. Perhaps he was too proud to accept. Perhaps he was an independent type and no one was going to tell him what he needed to wear. Or perhaps he just had no respect for the king and this was his means of protest. We don't know. But his refusal made the king furious and ultimately it saw him thrown out of the wedding banquet. Our king, our father God, is preparing a wedding banquet for his son. And he continues to send his servants out into the streets and laneways with an invitation for one and all to attend this great banquet. Through the death of his son, Jesus, the wedding garments have been supplied. Our garments, filthy with sin, can be exchanged for white because Jesus has borne the burden of our sin at the cross. And so we can be dressed in his righteousness. These robes then are a symbol of redemption. They are a precious gift from the bridegroom. You know, it is every bride's worst nightmare to arrive at her wedding with a great big stain down the front of her wedding dress and brides go to great lengths to ensure that that does not happen. To those who have not soiled their clothes in Sardis, Jesus says, they will be dressed in white, just like them, and their names will never be blotted out from the book of life. Instead, Jesus will acknowledge them before the Father and his angels. Sardis was a church that for the most part had clothed itself in complacency. They were happy living off their reputation 
and working in their own strength. But they had disconnected themselves from the one who is the source of life in the church. Therefore, their deeds were incomplete in the sight of God and their garments were soiled. So the question for each one of us today is, what are you wearing? What are you wearing right now? And I don't mean pyjamas, because I know some of you will be wearing your pyjamas this morning. But I mean, if the bridegroom were to return on this day, would you be ready? Would we all collectively be ready? Or are we dead in our own complacency? Would we be appropriately dressed? Are our garments radiant with joy and honour and humility and love and compassion and praise and thanksgiving? Or have we put on the garment of complacency or the garment of bitterness or the garment of unforgiveness or the garment of anger or the garment of laziness or the garment of pride? The Apostle Paul gives us these words in his letter to the Ephesian church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Why would anyone exchange that type of garment for anything else? Will you join with me in prayer as we close? Father, what a beautiful picture you've provided for us of what you desire for your church to be, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Thank you for sending Jesus to deal with that stain that sin leaves in our lives. Thank you that in his hands he holds the fullness of your Holy Spirit and that he is Lord of the church. Forgive us, Father, when we have been more concerned about our reputation before men than before you. Forgive us when our worship and works have become meaningless because they've been done in our own strength or because we've cut ourselves off from the one who is the head of this church. Forgive us for being the living dead and for becoming too comfortable at times in our soiled garments. Cleanse us again, we pray. Amen. Well, Pastor Glenn, can you believe it? We are at the end of lockdown six and faceless camera, your days are numbered because next week back here, we'll be looking at lots of faces before us. Lots of faces and lots of real voices. So as Pastor Glenn said, the basic details of uh, the restrictions that we'll be working under have been sent out. If you're not regularly a part of this church, um, there'll be a very short summary on the website, so just have a look there. Um, but if you're able, we would love to see you next week so that we can get to know you, particularly those of you who have um, just joined us online. 
Online services will always be a really poor substitute for the real thing. But we thank you, uh, Church, for bearing with us through all of it these last couple of years. May we never have to go there again. Before we close, on behalf of Pastor Glenn and myself, can I just take this opportunity to thank our dedicated data and audio team, particularly Bruce and Wes, who bore the lion's share of the production work this time, assisted by Jason and Russell and Xavier and Pushan, and even Jeff, who worked with us remotely on the phone when we needed some troubleshooting. Well, that's it. Over for us for, from lockdown six. We look forward to seeing those of you who can attend next week and we look forward even more to the day when we can all be here together again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let's draw our time to a close this morning with this beautiful song, Jesus Paid It All. Stop.